Well, Merry Christmas. You know, I was reminded this week as I was putting this message together that 24 years ago tonight, uh, I was able by some divine power of persuasion to convince my then girlfriend and now wife to agree to marry me, which is awesome. And um, thank you. Appreciate that. You know, and the deal was I knew that I was getting a good deal at the time, and, and what I've discovered is that I was actually getting a far greater deal than I had ever signed up for. Like, it, seriously, it's been, a, it's been so much more than that. And so what she's become for me is sort of the example in my life of how God does come along and gives exceedingly abundantly beyond anything you could ask or imagine. And that has, in fact, been the case for me. And if that is not the case for you, honey, then lie, okay? Just... <laughs> Just lie and we'll talk about it later. But I didn't get engaged to get engaged. I got engaged to get married. I was 26 and I wanted to get on with it. And so as soon as she agreed to marry me, I called the pastor of the church that she was a member of in Jacksonville, Florida, which is where she was living at the time. And I said, hey, you know, can we set an appointment with you because we want to get married? He said, great. And so we went to the appointment with exactly two questions and thinking this was all that we needed to deal with. Question number one, will you agree to do our wedding? Yes. Will you agree to do it on August 8th? Because that's the day that the stars align for both of our families. And please, 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 whatever you have to do, can you do it that day? He said, yeah. He said, I'll do your wedding. I'll do it on that day. Not a problem. But here's what you need to do. You need to agree to do premarital counseling with me or I won't do it. And, you know, like I wasn't really familiar with how this whole thing worked at that point. Like I didn't realize that's a pretty standard operating procedure. I just sat there thinking, good grief, you know, we're not even married. This guy thinks we need counseling, you know, and, <laughs> and, and we did incidentally, though we did not know it because it was just all bliss at that point. And so, you know, I'm a get it done guy. So I thought, well, all right, let, let's get that done. So we pulled out our calendars, you know, and we agreed on different dates and whatever. And I was living in Macon, Georgia. And so I would drive four hours to Jacksonville to see Beth. That's the truth. But we would also do those counseling sessions at the same time. And I'll never forget the first of those counseling sessions and how he opened this deal because we sat down with him and he's sitting at his desk and he's behind the desk and, you know, I'm sitting here and Beth is sitting to my left and I'm nervous already because I don't know what we're going to have to talk about. You know, I don't even know why we're here. And so anyway, what, what's this going to be? And so he prays, which was nice. And then he looks at me really like intensely and he asks me this question. He says, Tom, what do you think is the thing above all things that Beth is your wife, is going to, you ready for the next word, need from you. And I'm thinking, dude, could you not take me out to lunch so we can have this conversation without her around? I don't know the answer to that. This is crazy. So thus began this really, really long moment of awkward silence where like my heart's racing, my mind's racing. I'm listening to Jeopardy in my mind, you know, sweat is pouring down my face. Oh, crud, I still don't know. Boom, boom. Time's up. What's your answer? So I just guessed. I figured we're in love. We're getting married. It must be love, and even if it isn't, it doesn't sound stupid. So I said, well, the answer must be love. And he said, you are right. And I was like, yes, yes, I'm right. And then I looked at her because it's clear he's going there next. And then he did. So he says, now, Beth, what do you think is the thing, like the thing above all things that Tom, as your husband, no pressure, is going to need from you? And then just in case she couldn't hear the Jeopardy music, 
I just started looking around the room going, no, 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 you know, no, 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 you don't have much time left. No, 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 no. And she says, love? Like that wasn't already off the board, you know? But I mean, what else are you going to say? It's the obvious answer. And then he said something, and I enjoyed it greatly. I was kind of hoping at this point that that's what he would say. He said, you know, Beth, that's, that's actually not the right answer. And then I kind of looked at her as if to say, Tom won, Beth zero. <laughs> and I know you're thinking, wow, you're really competitive. And, and honestly, I, I'm kind of competitive, but I'm really competitive when somebody else is really competitive. And here's what you don't know about my wife, and you would never expect this. She's really, really competitive. She really is. And you wouldn't expect it because she is, in all sincerity, the nicest, kindest, calmest, gentlest, most selfless person that you will ever, no kidding, meet. So when you sit down to play like a game of cards or something with her, I mean, you're just thinking, oh, all she's going to care about is that everybody gets along and has fun. That's not true. She wants everyone to get along and have fun as long as that also involves her, figuratively speaking, of course, dancing on your grave when the game is done. So knowing that, I gave her the Tom one, Beth zero. Look, now in truth, it's been the opposite ever since then. So, but I remember and it was awesome. And so he said, all right, he said, let me explain. So he took us to Ephesians chapter 5, and he gave to us a principle that I want to give to you guys tonight. It's really important and profound. He said, here's the deal. Almighty God has designed you. He's made your soul, and therefore, Almighty God knows even better than you do what you long for and need. Sounds reasonable, doesn't it? So then Tom, he says to me, when God says in his word in Ephesians chapter 5, "'Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her,' Here's what he's saying to you as a prospective husband. He's saying, all right, here's the deal. I designed the heart of your wife. So let me give you some insight. Here's what she needs. She needs self-sacrificing all in, even if it costs me my life kind of love. That's what makes her feel safe, secure, valued. That's the kind of soil, if you will, that she will grow and blossom and flourish in, all right? And Beth, he says, now, when God comes to you as a wife and says, and the wife must, that's mandatory, incidentally, respect her husband, and then there's no footnote, there's no end note, there's no little parenthetical that says, unless he's a jerk or he doesn't deserve it, but just, and the wife must respect her husband, he's, he's telling you, hey, I designed the heart of Tom. Let me, let me tell you something about his heart. He needs for you to love him, yeah, but... He needs for you to express that love by communicating respect, by believing in him, even when it really doesn't make sense, by getting behind him and sticking with him and so on and so on and so forth. Almighty God has designed our hearts. He knows better than we do what we most need and long for. And here's the deal. We've experienced that in our marriage. That guy was dead on, or I should say, the Lord was dead on about that. And he knows not only what we most long for and need from each other, but he knows what we most long for and need from him too. Guys, the bottom line is that God has created us for himself. And so therefore then by design, he has created us with longings and needs that can only be satisfied in Jesus. And what that means practically speaking is that when he comes to us with a passage of scripture, like the singular verse that we're going to look at tonight, 
He's not just giving us a commentary about Jesus. He's giving us a commentary about me and about you and about what we long for and need, whether we realize it or not, whether we even agree or not. And why is that? Because he's made us to long for and need him. So with that in mind, I want to look tonight at Isaiah 9, verse 6, looking forward 750 years to the birth of Jesus. Isaiah the prophet by the Spirit of God says this, and we're going to break it down. He says, for to whom? Because it is really massively significant. And here's why it's significant, because it's personal. Feel that. Take that into your heart, okay? For to us, he says, a what? Because this is also significant. And here's why it's really significant, because it's tangible. And not only is it tangible, it's understandable. It's comprehensible by us. We all once were one. Many of us have several of them. We get this, for to us a child, there it is, is born, and then he says again to us, a son, as in the Son of God, yes, but as in also the Son of Man, a divine child is given. So then what does that teach us about Jesus, but not just about Jesus, about me and about you and about what we long for and about what we need? I think it teaches us that You know, what we're longing for and needing is not an invisible and comprehensible God. Now, I want to pause and say we do need an invisible and comprehensible God. We do need a transcendent God. We need a God that is far greater, far bigger, and frankly, wholly other than us. And here's why. We're good at making messes and we cannot clean them up. Technology hasn't done it for us. Education hasn't done it for us. Science hasn't done it for us. Listen, nothing has done it for us. The broken cannot fix themselves. So we need that great and amazing and transcendent, invisible and comprehensible God, but, but we don't need an invisible and comprehensible God who, when He appears, appears impersonally, intangibly, and, well, incomprehensibly. Here's what we long for. We long for a God who, when He appears to humanity, appears in person, tangibly, and in a form that we all get. And then what do we want that God to be? Well, He just tells us. He says, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. You're like, well, speaking of incomprehensible, that doesn't make any sense to me. What does that mean? In Isaiah's day, they understood this to refer to a king. So then what he's saying is that the child that is born, that the son that is given is a king. And now maybe you're thinking, well, Tom, I think this is where your theory breaks down, buddy, because I don't long for a king, and I'm pretty sure that I don't need one, but I want to just back up for a second and go, well, okay, but that puts you in an argument with your maker who's designed your soul and knows better than, sorry, but you do, who or what it is that you most need. And then secondly, you you haven't even heard the description of this king. You're making assumptions about what this king is like that maybe aren't true. So Isaiah now describes him. He says in his name, and now he's going to give us a list of names. And in the names come the description. He says, and his name shall be called, first of all, Wonderful Counselor. And you say, well, that's great because it's the Christmas season. I'm almost to the end of it. And between that and the traffic, I need counseling. And maybe that's true. But that's not what he's talking about. When he talks about a wonderful counselor here, he's talking about a military strategist. He's letting you know something, and that is that Almighty God is out to conquer you Do you hear that? As your king, to take you as his subject, and as we'll see in a moment, to bring you into his family as his son or daughter. That's the father king that you get through faith in Christ. And Isaiah sees his strategy for accomplishing this 
And he declares it wonderful. And why is it wonderful? Because it is unlike the strategy that any of us would come up with. Let me put it plainly. He doesn't come to take us by force. That's how we do things. It's power. It's manipulation. It's guilt. We power play each other. We do it passively and aggressively and sometimes passive aggressively, don't we? It's all about trying to dominate. What what does God do? He could dominate. But he comes to us in a form that is utterly vulnerable and more than that, utterly helpless. He enters into our humanity by the most human possible process, which is through a birth canal, and then he woos us with the face of a baby. And I ask you, who is not drawn to a baby? Like, I get you might not be drawn to take a baby home with you tonight. I get that. A, that would be kidnapping, and B, you'd have to feed it in the middle of the night, okay? That is a younger man's sport than I am ready for at this point. But when a couple walks in with a baby, people don't run. They run to the baby. It's magnetic. It's remarkable, the brilliance of our God. So what does this tell us about Jesus? And again, not just about Jesus, about me and you and about what we most long for and need, because that's what this is a commentary on. It tells us that we don't long for a great God and King who will intimidate us, who will beat us up, who will put us down. We get enough of that at home and at work, and we get enough of that at school. We do enough of that to ourselves. We long for a great God and King who will come to lift us up and who will, in fact, conquer us, but not with His might, with His mercy. And that's not all, for Isaiah then goes on and he says, and his name shall be called Mighty God. Okay, the Mighty God here speaks of a warrior. The idea is that Christ is a warrior king who, unlike the military leaders of our day, who for understandable reasons through technology sit in their war rooms, you know, and manage their wars from afar, enters into our humanity, puts us behind him, takes us off the battlefield, and walks out all by himself to do battle against the enemy that we cannot defeat, and that is the enemy of our sin. And I recognize that we live in a day and in an age where we deny the very existence of sin, but I hope that you recognize that notwithstanding the fact that we deny it, we continue to wallow in every single one of its consequences and effects. We look at our lives and think, well, good grief, what in the world? How has this become such an incredible mess? And it's like, well, let's look at the book of your life for a second. I mean, just flip through some pages. Whoa, we've got some selfishness here. Whoa, we have some pride here. Whoa, we have some passion and lust here. We've, we've got things here. Don't you see how those things have worked their way out in, in your life? Can't you see that? I mean, I can see that. We can see it when we're the victim of it. And here's the problem with the books of our lives, mine and yours. The problem is that whereas we can flip through the pages, we can't take any of them out. (laughs) Oh, we can read it, but we can't delete it. That's the problem. So this child that is born, this son that is given, this great God and King who comes personally, tangibly, in a form that we get, grows into a man. And then what does he do, effectively speaking? He takes upon himself the book of mine and your lives. Everything we'd love to delete if given the opportunity. And with his life, pays the debt that we owe both to humanity and most significantly to Almighty God himself. He makes us clean. The role of the king in the Bible is to save his people. 
That's the kind of king we're talking about, but then, as if that's not enough, Isaiah says that his name shall be called Everlasting Father. And depending on what kind of a dad you had, you know, that's more or less exciting to you. But understand that in Jesus, you get a perfect father, a father who doesn't seek to disadvantage you, but to advantage you, not to abuse you, but he takes abuse for you, not to impose himself upon you. He laid down his life for you, not to disinherit or disown you. He purchased you with his blood. And he's an everlasting father and a perfect one, so he doesn't die and he doesn't leave. And then lastly... Isaiah says that Jesus' name shall be called Prince of Peace. And here's why, because peace is what he brings with God and then as we learn to follow him, with each other too. I mean, the greatest blessing in my marriage is the Lord. He's the one who's made my wife what she is. It's remarkable, and it's to his glory. So here's the deal, simple. Almighty God has designed your heart and soul. He's made you for Himself. You can deny that or whatever, but it nevertheless is true. So here's the deal. Simple principle. Almighty God designed your soul. Not to be satisfied in anyone or anything ultimately but Him. You long for Him. And He is the one you need. So then who is He? Well, just from this verse, He is the great God and King who comes to you personally tangibly and in a form that you can't miss, that you understand. Indeed, that's magnetic. That draws you to Him. Doesn't make you come to bow. He conquers you with His mercy and not with His might. He takes down your single greatest enemy that you have no shot against and you can't do a thing about, and that is your sin. He brings you into His family as His beloved son or daughter. And then He gives you eternal life and eternal peace. Guys, that's what Christmas is all about. That's what Jesus came to do. That's what we long for and need, whether we realize it or not. And I hope you realize it tonight. Okay? Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the gift of our Lord and of our Savior. We thank You, God, that You have not turned from us, but You turned toward us. That in our sin, Lord, you came to rescue. We thank you that you came bringing mercy. That you woo us with the face of a child. Lord, that you draw us in and capture our hearts and minds and imagination with your love. God, that you freely grant to us your forgiveness for you yourself have paid the price. That we are your sons or daughters through faith in this Jesus. And I pray that tonight we would celebrate that Jesus with our song, with our attitudes, Lord, with our lives. And I pray tonight, too, that we would celebrate that Jesus by bringing our sin and selves to Him, by confessing that, you know what? That is what we're longing for and need. And by finding in Him the forgiveness and eternal life that we cannot find in anything or in anyone else. Bring us to faith in you, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.